I'd love to share with you before we launch into the sermon. Uh, first of all, for those of you who were not aware, Stacy Dufour's brother did pass away this week, and so we want to pray for Stacy and their family, and we'll pause here in a moment to do that. But uh, we also uh, saw last week Michael Paul has returned from Uganda, and we want him in the coming weeks to be able to share about that, as well as Mandy Trammell has returned from China, and uh, so she's here, and we look forward to both Michael and Mandy uh, sharing about what's happening in Uganda as well as China, so that our hearts may as always be stirred for the nations and the need of uh, all peoples to hear of the gospel of Christ. Let's pause and thank the Lord for the safe return of these and also ask for his presence and power in Stacy and her family's life. Father, we thank you for today. We do thank you for the opportunity that you've given Mandy and Michael to participate. Thank you for the provision in every way. Thank you for bringing them back here. Father, I pray more than anything else that you would continue to use those trips in their lives, and then through their lives, you would continue to use the trips in our lives. Father, we pray for others today that are uh, on trips, others, Father, today that are serving full-time. And we pray for you, as you did with Lydia, you would open up hearts for the gospel. Father, we pray that you would help the gospel to advance. We pray for those that are serving, that today they would be encouraged. Father, today they would be strengthened. Today that they would have a heart that's full of Christ and his cross. And that this they would proclaim to those that are around them. Father, we pray for those groups that are still waiting to hear. Groups that have no one working with them. No one telling them about Jesus. Father, would you send people to tell them. For without Christ, they will never be reconciled to you. Father, would you give us an urgency? Would you grip our hearts with gospel urgency? And would you help us to order our lives to reflect this urgency? Father, we pray for these people groups, and as always, we pray for those who don't have Scripture in their language. Father, that you would continue to call people to linguistics and translation and immersing with people groups for the good of those groups and for your glory. Father, for Stacy Dufour and the rest of her family, we pray for your strong provision for the children and young wife that have been left behind as a result of this accident. Father, we pray for your provision for them. You are a father to the fatherless. And so, Father, would you show yourself strong to these daughters and to this widow? And Father, would you comfort in the deepest levels and as they move forward with different feelings at different times, even anger at times, Father, you are sufficient to handle all of this. So I pray you would use even this. Father, your word says you work all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Father, we pray that you would use even this for the good of this family. And we praise you, as always, for the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Father, we pray also for the family of the DOM, the Director of Missions in New Orleans, who passed away this week, and his young family, that is left behind. And we pray for your strong provision for them. Father, we pray for our new director of mission here in our association. We pray for Dr. Tommy Middleton and for your provision in every way for the new role that he will transition into. Father, we pray that you would use him as a pastor to pastors and use him to unite uh, the groups that are here. Father, we pray that you would use him to guide how we cooperate together very well for the good of this city and for your glory. Father, we pray now as we turn to your word, we need you to light it up. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. 
Uh, I would encourage parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, the first verse you should teach these babies is 1 Corinthians 10, 31. The very first verse you should teach babies, and maybe you are a babysitter. Don't waste your time just watching Disney and everything else. If you're babysitting, teach the children you're babysitting, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. If you just randomly see a child at the mall, go up to them and teach them 1 Corinthians 10, 31. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So repeat after me. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. I apologize, I didn't put it to song. I did not. I have a knack of putting, uh, I don't know, knack, I have a habit of putting scripture to song because it helps me memorize it and it helps our children memorize it. I've actually done that to the great commandment. I was going to share it with you, but I won't. I'll pause on that today. Um, Michelle saying, do it, do it. Uh, We want, around our table the other day, we, we studied this verse with Arabella and with Adelaide and Adoniram. And so that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. From the earliest days, we want to orient our children to what really matters. We want to orient them to God's purposes and to God's glory. So that whether they're cleaning up their room, whether they're doing dishes, whether they're doing homework, whether they're on a mission trip, they would do it all for the glory of God, right? Otherwise, they just become menial tasks and things become separated. Nothing should be separated. Just because you don't work on this campus, whatever you do at your job should be for the glory of God wherever it is. doesn't matter if it's a refinery, a pharmacy, a school. It should all be for the glory of God. And so, friends, grandparents, aunts, uncles, moms, dads, and random person who sometimes comes and eats a snack in our house, I want to beg you, live this for these children we've dedicated today. Live this for these children. May it be evident that I get the oil changed for the glory of God. May it be evident that I do yard work for the glory of God. May it be evident that I care about my neighbor for the glory of God and her good. So we want to make sure that if we're teaching, we're teaching 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, as we teach, how many of you would say, I sometimes don't learn things the first go-round? Anyone? Anyone would say that? How many of you parents have already had to teach something at least twice? How many of you had to teach it thrice? How many times? Five. I don't know if that's how it says or not. I just wanted to roll on to it on purpose. So you found sometimes we have to teach things, and not just because our children are bad, but at different maturity levels. I did not start Arabella with the word propitiation. That was not the first thing as I snuggled her in one night and said, Christ, is your propitiation? Night, night, baby. You know, I don't start there, right? We just begin with Christ who he is and what he's done. And we mature to understand. And so we want to, at different times, repeat. And so, yes, we've already seen repetition, repetition. The one thing that we are going to get to in a moment that we repeat over and over and over, the gospel, the gospel, both inside and outside the church. We have to hear it. We have to be reminded that Christ is our righteousness. Otherwise, we're going to walk out of here and try to earn it. Otherwise, there's a world that is trying to live without it. And so we're going to need to repeat, repeat, repeat. I've rarely been a first lesson guy. I've told you often and admitted it took me forever to learn to tie shoes. Honestly, till fourth grade. I could bunny tie them one ear, another ear, and do them together. And I was awesome with Velcro. But in fourth grade is when I finally nailed it. How many of you learned to drive a standard on the first day? Anyone remember those days? 
Those are fun days, aren't they? Because you can like go forward and then slam your head back. You know what I'm talking about? I was, I was teaching Lurland to drive a standard, and I have never laughed so hard that day because we just, we were like, we were headbangers, little Baptist headbangers, you know, going back and forth. The first day I got my truck, I still hadn't mastered a clutch on a hill, you know what I'm talking about? And so I got to the top of that hill, and I went, and went in reverse until I could find somewhere to turn around that was flat and go a different direction, right? Or you squall them because you hit it so hard, like, boom, you know, that's, that was me, all right? So I didn't master that. Snow skiing, anyone ever master that on the first row? And I know we do a lot in Baton Rouge because it's so frigid here, but I remember I thought I would master it. And I thought all you do is put the skis on and go downhill, right? It can't be that difficult, right? And uh, I found out the hard way. So my friends tried to teach me snowplow. And I've always packed a few extra pounds around these regions. And so snowplow don't always work for chunky folk. Snowplow is when you turn your skis in, right? And you're like, please stop, right? But if you're packing a little extra, you just fly right over it, right? And so the plow is actually your face on the ground. But... (laughs) Uh, I got to the top of the bunny hill the first time, and I just pointed down and was like, this is what you do. And then I was like, I don't know how to stop, you know. And they're like, sit down. And I was like, no. You know, they're like, sit down. And I was like, no. So finally I did a Ninja Turtle spin, you know, and just stuff went everywhere. And fortunately, uh, my friend had a great uncle who was there who was 83 who said, I can teach you to ski, you know. And it felt like a weird Scooby-Doo cartoon for a little bit. But uh, we went to the top of the hill, and he says, here's what you do, put your hands on my hips. And I was like, this seems very awkward. Surely I can learn to ski without having to touch a man, you know? There's got to be other ways to learn, right? But he's like, you put your hand on my hips and we're going to turn together, right? And so I put him on him and that first turn, I took him with me, you know? And I was like, did you break your hip? You know, I I was scared to death. And so... He, but he taught me. He began to teach me. He taught me so well, my friends thought on day one I should go to a black diamond, you know. And so, in case you don't know, that's almost the worst. Double black diamonds are extremely the worst. But I didn't know because I was ski blind. I didn't know what colors meant. So I got to the top. The very short of that is I got so tired of falling, I just slid down on my behind and ripped a hole in my breeches. And people were like, hey, hey, you know, the rest of the way down the mountain. I didn't learn skiing the first day. So all that to say, sometimes... We don't learn lessons the first time through. We really don't. I want you to hold your place in Colossians. We're obviously going to be there. And I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. The good news is we are not the only slow learners. We are not the only ones that have needed repetition. Uh, Peter and Paul both will emphasize things over and over and over. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, this is Peter as he's late in life. And uh, the last letter that is recorded from him for us. And he has some things that he wants to communicate. And so in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, here's what it says. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be at any time, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Parents, grandparents, what a great life mission. He says, you know what? I realize I'm not going to be in the body forever. And I don't mind reminding you of these things. And he says, I want to make sure that when I'm gone, you can recall all of this you would be able to recall all of this. Dad, that's a great task as a father. Mom, 
It's a great task. Grandparents, here it is. And here's what he says in 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter says, I want you to know some stuff. I want you to remember it, and when I'm gone, I want you to know, yes, true, I saw Jesus. I heard the voice from heaven. He says, I want you to know it wasn't someone else. I heard it. I was a witness. But even if I'm not here, you have the word. And he says, you would do well. Pay attention to it. It's like a lamp shining until it blossoms and it blooms into full day into your heart. And so you have the word. And he said, I want you to know how it came about. We weren't just sitting around thinking, I should write something on papyrus today. It's not how it came about. We were carried along by the Holy Spirit. No one just wrote this on their own. This is a word from the Lord for you so that you can know the truth. And he says, I don't ever grow tired of telling you this, being solid on who Jesus was and the word about him. Now let's turn back to Colossians in our passage today. In Colossians chapter 1, this is what Paul is doing. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. Who's writing this? To the church at where? Colossae. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. And as Kevin shared last week, we're going to look just a sneak peek. But in 15 through 23, in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, he's going to begin by reminding them of two things, Christ's supremacy and Christ's sufficiency. And we're going to see these in just a moment. But the reason that Paul is writing is, do you remember how the Colossians heard about the gospel? We studied that two weeks ago. Who told the Colossians about the gospel? You can sneak peek. I see heads going down. What was that dude's name? Right, look up. Who told him? Who was it? Epaphras. Epaphras brought the gospel to Colossae. But after Epaphras brought the gospel, some other folks came in. And as you see in chapter 2, verse 8, in chapter 2, verse 18, there's some other folks that are trying to take what was shared and then say, well, let me give you some philosophical things. Let me give you some human arguments. Let me deny the deity of Jesus. You may have heard this about Jesus, but Jesus was really just a man. He's also going to go in to say in 18, some people are trying to get them to worship angels and even enter into extreme asceticism. So to do severe things for their body in hopes that this would earn righteousness. And so Paul says, I'm writing to you so you won't be led away from that jump. I want to give you the truth about Jesus. Paul is not proving Jesus. He is proclaiming Jesus at this point. And he says, I want to tell you who he is and what he's done. And you rest in this. You rest in who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. And don't be pulled away. And so this is the beginning. And so Paul never tires of repeating the gospel. He knows they understood it. But as he's going to say in 23, he does not want them to shift from it. He wants them to be stable, steadfast and not shift from the gospel stable steadfast and not shift from the gospel and as a pastor i have no greater desire for you as a parent i have no greater desire for my children that they would be stable steadfast and not shifting from the gospel but they would be founded in it they would continue in it and they would 
hope in it all the days of their life. Let's stand together and read verses 15 through 23 this morning and then ask the Lord to hold the sun that we may be able to get it all in. Beginning in 15, this is about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, watch this church, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Father, we are grateful for the gospel. Our only hope is the gospel. We have no righteousness but what Christ accomplished on the cross. His death, his blood, is our only hope for reconciliation with you. Father, your word says here, we were alienated, cut off. We were hostile in mind, not neutral toward you, hostile toward you. And we were doing evil deeds. And yet in it, it says, you reconciled us. God, thank you for this word. I pray that we would be those who continue in the hope of the gospel. We are steadfast. We are stable. We are not shifting from it. But Father, it's evident we are those who have been changed. We are those who've been reconciled to you. Father, these babies that we've dedicated, their greatest hope is the gospel. So their greatest need is a mom and dad who live, breathe, pray, sing, embrace the gospel. Their greatest need is a faith community that never gets past the gospel but goes deeper and deeper into the gospel. So, Father, I pray for Crosspoint that it would be a faith community in which these children grow up hearing the gospel, what Christ has accomplished, that their only hope for sanctification is Christ. So, Father, I pray now that your spirit would light this text up, that we may understand it, that we may be changed. Father, I pray that you would bring dead hearts to life. You would encourage discouraged hearts. And, Father, you would convince us of the gospel and you would produce gratefulness in our hearts. For by his blood and by his body, our reconciliation has been obtained. It's in his name we pray to Amen. I want you to look again at this passage quickly this morning. And the opening part is who Jesus is. And as, we, as I emphasized over and over and over, he is, he is, he is, as Paul is proclaiming who Jesus is. I know that Kevin walks you through this. I'll apparently hold this so it doesn't make that noise and bother me the whole time. I know that Kevin walked you guys through 15 through 20, and so I am not going to rehash all that he did. I just want to point out two things, Christ's supremacy and Christ's sufficiency. So repeat after me, Christ's supremacy, Christ's sufficiency. Good. In 15 through 18, we see Christ's supremacy. And what does that mean? It means he is over all of these, and it is his supremacy in creation. And it opens, and it tells us that, All things are created by him. All things are created through him, and all things are created for him. 
So the world uh, uh, mistakenly believes that Jesus is just king over a little bunch of people who believe in Easter. But friends, Jesus is king of the universe. Jesus is king over everything. This is what it means for his supremacy. There is not a single thing in creation that he didn't create. There's not a single thing in creation that was not created for him. So it is all for his glory. The internet, it's for his. Art, it's for his. Politics, it's for his glory. Christ is king over all things, which means if there's some area that is not reflective of his kingship, you are in error, friend, not him. He is the king. And so Paul just begins. He's not trying to prove it. He's just trying to tell you who it is, what it is. This is the truth. Jesus is king over all things. Jesus was not created. Jesus created all things. The word there, prototokos, has to do with have his preexistence, that he's always been. That's why we see here image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Not only is he supreme in creation, his supremacy is in the church, the new creation. It says in 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So he is in the church. He's the head of the church, meaning he is our source of nourishment. My toes do not receive nourishment from my elbow, do they? Where do we get nourishment? Well, an IV, right? I'm just kidding. No, our normal way is through our mouth, right? Jesus is the head. And in multiple ways, the rest of the body receives nourishment via the head. They receive vision via the head. All that we do via the head. Jesus is the head. He is the leader of the church and the source of its nourishment. Not only is he the head, he is the hope of the church. That's what it says. He is beginning the firstborn from the dead. That's emphasizing his resurrection. And so he is the hope of the church. If Jesus did not truly rise from the dead, then as Paul says, we're all to be pitied. But he goes on to say, in fact, Christ was resurrected. And so, friends, because he was resurrected, he is the hope of the church. So Christ's supremacy in creation and in the church. And if you have a local church in which Christ's supremacy is not evident, you don't need to stay at that local church, do you, friends? Christ should be the head of his church in every local expression. And it should be evident we're following Christ. We're following Christ. It should be evident. Not only Christ's supremacy, but now look quickly at Christ's sufficiency. In his person, God with us. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So when he came, he comes in the flesh. Emmanuel is God with us. And he's letting you know Jesus isn't some dude who just showed up. Jesus is God. That's the point of the passage. But the very fact that God would even come and dwell among us is amazing. But that's not most amazing. What's most amazing is next in verse 20, that through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the most amazing is not God with us. The most amazing is God for us. This should cause us to be speechless this morning, that God would be with us. And if you don't have a good grasp on that, it's probably because you don't have a good grasp on verse 21 and what you were. And we're going to see that our breath should always be stolen as we look at this table. And when I was a little kid, I used to be so scared on Sunday mornings when we come in and the table would be set up. I was worried it was a body underneath. You remember those days? Anyone? I was like, this is weird. I am scared. Right. And so I would always be like, what is it? And of course, we're going to in a moment observe the Lord's ordinance. We're going to have crackers and we're going to have juice and they're just substitutes. And I would submit poor substitutes. And a little bit of cracker and juice. But what they proclaim is so much greater. And every time we see this table, our breath should be taken away. God for us. How do you know he's for you? He gave his son in your place. 
He gave his son's blood in your place. He gave his son's life in your place. And you were the one that offended him. And so our breath should be amazed, not just God with us, but God for us. And friends, Christ is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. He is sufficient in being with us, and he is sufficient in what he's accomplished. And the big word that we're going to study today is reconciliation. What's the big word for today? All right, what's the big word for today? All right, so I know Anna Slayton. Anna and uh, has to do a word for the day. What did you learn in the service? And Arabella, these are words. When someone asks you today, what did you learn today? Reconciliation. That's what you want to tell them. And we're going to talk about that because our adult friends need to be reminded of this as well. So he begins with who Jesus is. He now moves to what Jesus has done. And what has Jesus done? Reconciled. Look at what he says in 20. He says, through him to reconcile. Verse 22, he has now reconciled. Remember what we learned earlier in the service? Through repetition, we see what's being emphasized. And what's being emphasized is what he has done. So I'll leave who he is to Kevin's work last week. We'll move now to what he's done in our focus this week of reconciliation. And I only have three simple points from this text. Number one, like the Colossians, we need to be reconciled to God but are hopeless on our own to achieve it. Like the Colossians, we need to be reconciled to God, but are hopeless on our own to achieve it. Let's read verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. I uh, know some folks, and I am one of those folks who occasionally have poor self-awareness. You know, have you ever been around those folks? I, if you were to ask my wife, have the worst self-awareness with regard to nose hairs and the length of them, right? But somehow she could be across this room and spot one nose hair that was a little bit lengthier, and it would be as if Chewbacca and I were twins. If you were to listen to her stories and the way she, she spots it, and she's like, do you even look in the mirror? And somehow I do. But I just never gaze at the length of my nose hairs. But she does. And if there's anything that annoys her much, it's her. I'd never put them in a ponytail, but it's a big deal to her. So she's always on me. But you know there are others. There's some people who are very loud. Melissa Fridge, she's not here, so I can pick on her. And so I will always say to you, I'm not that loud. If you raise decibels to respond, you are that loud. You know what I'm talking about? There are other people. Have you ever been around someone who uh, had been working all day and perhaps... They didn't think they smelled as bad as they did. And they said, I am not that stinky. Or if you've ever tried to bathe a child who says, I'm not that dirty. Anyone ever encounter bath time with children? Man, it's killing me. Well, one of the hardest things in our day is to convince people, first of all, they are sinners. That's one of the most difficult things to convince people they're sinners. And then when they are sinners, that their sin is as bad as your sin and everybody else's sin. Because they might have this self-awareness of, I'm not that bad of a sinner. But friends, this is a a poor self-awareness. I was thinking too, anyone ever see Monty Python's Holy Grail? You see that? And after the guy loses his arms and legs, he's like, it's just a flesh wound, right? (laughs) Awful self-awareness. And we see it. Fortunately, friends, our job is not persuasion, but proclamation. Our job isn't persuasion. The Lord does that. Our job is to tell them, no, friend, you're worse than you think. Matter of fact, look at what the Bible says in 21. The Bible says three things. Without Jesus, we are alienated. Without Jesus, we are hostile in mind. And without Jesus, we're doing evil deeds. How many of you think that sounds pretty bad? 
This is what the Bible says about us without Jesus. Let's begin with the first one. What does it mean to be alienated? Alienated means to be estranged, cut off, separated. So the word alienated means estranged, cut off, or separated. The question is, who are we cut off from? Cut off from whom, I guess would be the other way to say that. And the answer is God. We see this in Ephesians 2. I'll read them to you. I put the references there. Ephesians 2.12 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Who are you alienated from? We're alienated from God. We're separated from God. We're cut off from God. He goes on in Ephesians 4.18 to say, alienated from the life of God. Most people have no idea they're separated from God. Most people assume they're good enough to have a relationship with God on their own if they wanted it. That's what most people assume. The problem is that assumption, when compared to the truth of the Bible, gets us all in trouble. The Bible contends that not everyone in the world has a relationship. It says that we are estranged, we're cut off, we're separated from God, we're alienated. Now look at what Paul is saying to them. He says, and you who once were, you once were cut off, you once were separated, you once were alienated, Do not forget you were cut off from God with no way of getting to him. You were once separated with no means of mending the separation. And so as believers and as the Colossians, we see this as our past. But for those who do not know Jesus and are not in Jesus, this is their present, friends. Why do we go and tell the nations about Jesus? Because the nations are still separated from God. They are still cut off from God. They are still estranged from God. Which leads us to the next question, why? Are we alienated from God? Why are we separated? And I'm really glad you asked that question. I love preaching to smart people. Here's why. He says this. We're hostile in mind. So we're alienated from God because we're hostile in mind. The word hostile implies hateful. Well, who are we hateful in mind to? We're hateful in mind to God. That's what the scripture tells us. So I want you to grasp something right here. To be hostile doesn't just mean we're apathetic. To be hostile means we're antagonistic. And so uh, let me give you an example from nature. I don't like cats. They make my eyes water. But if you have a cat and it's purring up against your leg, rubbing. How many of you have ever seen one of these things, right? Yeah, you've ever seen one of these. Would you say that that cat is hostile? No, technically I would, but not in this illustration. A purring cat is not very hostile, right? But what if you have a pit bull and it's snarling and it's lunging at you? Which one would you say is more hostile? The cat or the pit bull? Obviously, the pit bull. And this is what Scripture says. Friend, you may think you're a purring cat outside of Christ to God, but the Bible says you're a pit bull snarling and attacking him. The Bible says you're an enemy of God, and you're born that way. So why are we cut off from him? Because we're not just apathetic to God. We're antagonistic to God. We will not let him rule us. We will do what we want. We will think what we want to think, and that's how we are, cut off and separated from him. And as the Bible will say, our minds are darkened, futile, blinded, ignorant, captive, and it says you're born that way. Ephesians 2.3 says, by nature, we are objects of wrath. So how did we get here? Adam and Eve chose disobedience, and it's infected the rest of us from the moment we were born. So every baby that we dedicated this morning, every baby is born hostile to God. Every one of these cute little suckers, every one of them, hostile to God. And so are the parents 
and grandparents and all those, it's how we were born. The question is, do we stay there? While we are there, here's what the Bible says, we're doing evil deeds. That's the rest of 21. So when our minds are captive to evil, well, this is what our bodies are going to do. What we think determines what we do. Now, let me ask you, is it shocking that if you have a Mountain Dew can, that Mountain Dew would pour out of that can? It's shocking. Is that shocking? It's not very shocking, is it, right? No, because Mountain Dew is supposed to come out of a Mountain Dew can. In the same way, we should not be shocked that it says, when you're hostile to God, you do evil. When you're hostile to God, you do evil. Why? From evil comes evil. That's what pours out. Or otherwise, Jesus is a very poor theologian. But he told you, from the good tree comes good fruit, from the bad tree comes bad fruit. And it's not rocket science. It's spiritual. Here's what happens. If you're cut off from him and you're hostile toward him, you're going to do evil. Uh, Lucas has said this, evil deeds are the inevitable result of an evil heart and persist in every human culture and reappear in every new generation, presenting man and society with his most intractable problems. So friends, it doesn't matter where you're born on the globe or when you're born on the globe. This is how we are all born on the globe. Every generation, every place, we are born hostile, doing evil, and as a result, we are alienated. We are cut off from God. So let me give you a summary. What Paul reminds the Colossians, you were once cut off from God because you were born hating him and demonstrated that hatred in your actions. You had an evil mind that led to evil actions, and there's nothing you can do to change this. You can't change your heart, your mind, or your relationship with God. How many of you would say this sounds spiritually ugly? I thought about we used to do, a, uh, when I go to high school basketball games, cheerleaders would do that uh, when someone was shooting a free throw, a little cheer of, hey, you, you on the line, you ain't cute, you ain't fine, you ugly, yeah, yeah, you ugly. We teach that in Sunday school sometimes. U-G-L-Y, you ain't got no alibi, you ugly, yeah, yeah, you ugly. And so we would join them because it was fun. And uh, this is the cheer they would do is guys would shoot a free throw. Please don't miss what Paul is saying in this verse. We are spiritually very, very ugly. We are spiritually worse than you think. It's not sweet. We're not good. We're hostile toward God. We're evil. We're separated. Now, like the Colossians, big point number two, our one means of reconciliation with God is Jesus' work on the cross. So at our worst point, cut off, hating God, doing evil, look at what is said next in Colossians. It says this, verse 22, He has now reconciled. So when you were alienated, hostile mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled. Who has done this? God has. God has reconciled. Let's continue to learn. What does this mean? The word is catalasso. Can you say that? Catalasso. Let's say it again. Catalasso. Good. Say it again. The word catalasso means to change or exchange. And the word where you see reconcile, it means to change or exchange. And so God changes us, all right? Or he exchanges us. But the beauty of this passage is Paul writes apo catalasso. So what does Paul write? Apo catalasso. And it means to change thoroughly or completely. So Paul doesn't just write and talk about change. He talks about complete change, thorough change that is brought about. And change is a relationship word. We are reconciled to God. And often, how many of you may have engaged in a fight 
And at one point, you went one way, and the person you were arguing with went the other way. Anyone ever happen? It's never happened in our home, but if it does, I'll tell you about it. Most of the time, uh, you know, this is how arguments happen. You go one way, they go another. This is not what Paul is teaching here. If Paul were teaching that, the word would be dialoso, because it means mutual grievances. It is not mutual, friends. It is catalasso. We are the party that went away from God. Now, here's the beauty. God comes and gets us. This is incredible. God is the one who is offended, and yet he comes to get us. God is not reconciled to us. The enmity is ours alone. It is we who need to be reconciled to God, not God to us. And so propitiation, the big word I told you, is what makes reconciliation possible. What is propitiation? Jesus taking God's wrath. Propitiation makes reconciliation possible. And we'll see that here. It says that he has now reconciled. Jesus has done this. We are not reconciled by what we do, but only by what Christ has done. Parents, this is so important. Because if you grasp this, then you won't keep trying to earn righteousness by memorizing Bible verses. You won't keep trying to earn righteousness by going on mission trips. You won't teach your children to earn righteousness by giving. You will teach your children there is no righteousness earned. It is all imputed to us from Christ. And it is important that you grasp this because then you will sing only to Christ. Then you will proclaim only Christ. And your children and your grandchildren will see my only hope for catalasso, for apo catalasso, for reconciliation and relationship with God, is Christ. Christ and Christ alone. How did God do this? He answers it very simply in verse 20. He says this, making peace by the blood of his cross. And he says in verse 21, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So very simply, how is it that we are changed? Christ's blood and Christ's death on the cross, or what we call substitution. Without the shedding of blood, Scripture says, there's no remission of sins. The question is, why does blood have to be shed? And the answer is because it's the life source. And so the reason that one life is spared is because another life is given. The reason one person avoids death is because another receives death. And so in Christ, the only means of reconciliation is what we call substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary, because he took our place. Atonement, because he paid our debt substitutionary atonement. He mends this. Christ is given full credit for our sin. We're given full credit for his righteousness. So God, the offended party, the one we're cut off from because we're evil, we're hostile, he is the one who chooses to be in right relationship with us and in choosing so pays the price for that. And what was that price? Peter writes in First Peter and he says, you were not ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Friends, the greatest wonder is not that we would choose Christ. The greatest wonder is that Christ would choose us. He paid the price for you to be reconciled. Why? He tells you why in 22. You see that? Why did he reconcile you in his body of flesh by his death? In order to. You should circle those words. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. To present you holy and blameless. The, the phrase there, to present, I'll tell you what, sorry.
Thank you. All right. Thank you, guys. Okay, ready? So in order to present you. The phrase here, present, means to bring another before court. We're brought before the divine judge. And now, no matter what we were before, these are the words that are spoken over us. Holy, blameless, and above reproach. The reason God reconciled us is that we might have relationship with him. And I'll show you that in just a moment. But look at this. Is this not incredible? To be holy means to be separated without sin. To be blameless means without blemish. And to be above reproach means no charge can be brought against us. Let's take just a moment and let that soak in. Here's what happens. When God reconciles you in Jesus, you are no longer alienated. You are holy. You are no longer hostile in mind. You're blameless. You're no longer doing evil deeds. You're above reproach. And all of this is because of Jesus' work. When the Father looks at you, it is Jesus he sees. Is this not incredible? Is this not the best news? This is the only news. This is our only hope. There's no other way the words holy, blameless, and above reproach can be spoken to you. So mom and dad, please don't think if you raise your children in Christ, you can be holy, blameless, and above reproach. Please don't think if you give half of your money, you can be holy, blameless, and above reproach. The only way that these words are spoken over you is Christ Jesus. And how incredible that we who were cut off and hating, this is now the change that has happened, and not partial change, complete, thorough change. Apo Catalasso. Now, here's the biggest question. Why the change? Because the point is not holiness, the point is not blamelessness, and the point is not above reproach. You see that, right? Those are not the end. Those are the means to the end of enjoying God forever. Those are the means to the end of having relationship with God. Without holiness, without blamelessness, without being beyond reproach, you will have no relationship with God. You will never be reconciled to God. So the end result isn't just, I'm holy. The end result isn't just, no charge against me. The beauty is, those things are the means to which we can enjoy God forever. And without them, there is no God forever in that phrase and in that way. Christ Jesus has accomplished this. So then let me move then to close with the last one. Like the Colossians, we're to continue in the faith and never shift from the gospel. He writes in 23 and says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Very simply this, friends. There should be evidence of our having been reconciled to God. For these babies growing up in our homes, it should be evident we've been changed. For every time they come visit you, Paul Paul, it should be evident you've been changed by Christ. Every time they have biscuits at your house, Mama, they should be evidence you have been changed. That's Paul's point. If we've been reconciled to God, then we should continue in that. Those who don't continue, we're never reconciled, friends. That's the very simple truth of Scripture. The best evidence of our reconciliation is our continued path in the gospel. The best evidence of our reconciliation is our continued path, continued perseverance in the gospel. We are not just changed for a moment, but for eternity. Therefore, we're to continue. Now, I want to pause right here because I think as Southern Baptists, we have emphasized eternal security to the detriment of perseverance. 
I believe that we have emphasized, once you get saved, brother, do what you want. Friends, it is not about a decision. It is about being a disciple. If you pray a prayer and then go on and do what you want, you are not saved, friends. Because when you are reconciled to God, you now do what he wants. And anything less of that is not reconciliation. So it is not. Don't be fooled by a moment. He says, if you're in him, it should be evident. You're continuing in it. You're not shifting from it. You're stable in it. You're steadfast in it. The gospel is flowing out of you. We don't want to see people make decisions. We want to make disciples and people who are reconciled, not saved to do whatever I want. True change. If apokatalaso is there, true change, thorough change, then don't you think it should be evident? Friends, where there is no transformation, there is no gospel. If you look like you've always looked, my guess is you look like verse 21. It just masks as religion. So be very careful that what we continue in is Christ. 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 So Paul writes, and he's telling the Colossians, Jesus is supreme over all things. His work on the cross is sufficient. So as you get to these verses that are coming up, you can treat your body as severe as you want. Christ's righteousness is the only way. And so he's telling them be stead, to be stable. The word there means established, well-founded. Do you remember the song we teach our children? The wise man built his house upon the, the rock. The wise man built his house on the rock, friends. Be stable. Be built on the rock. Be steadfast, loyal to this, and then be an immovable. Do not shift. Don't be pulled to the side. From what? He says this, the hope of the gospel. And we know from what we studied two weeks ago, this hope is certainty, the certainty of the gospel, the certainty of who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. That's the hope of the gospel, the certainty of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. To what other gospel will we go to? Paul clears that up in Galatians. There is no other gospel. There is no other means to be reconciled. What does it look like if we're continuing in the faith? Well, it looks like people who sing the gospel, people who pray the gospel, people who talk about the gospel, who share the gospel, who walk in the gospel. This is the gospel that he says here that the Colossians heard. This is the gospel that's proclaimed in all creation. You can see that in Acts 2. And this is the gospel of which Paul became a minister. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5, and we're going to transition. I'll ask our deacons to come. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. And I know that will take a few moments. Hopefully our lunch plans will hold. As our deacons come, I want to read 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 17 for us, as we think about reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 16, let's just start there. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. Do you see that? Who through Christ reconciled us to himself 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you know why we participate in this table? It's not because we're supposed to do it the first Sunday of every month. This isn't rote religion. At this table, we do two things. We remember and we proclaim Christ and his sacrifice. Christ came. Christ is the king. And Christ is the only means to a right relationship with God. The most important need for these babies and for your neighbors and for your coworkers is to be in right relationship with God. And the only way that can happen is Christ and his achievement on the cross. And so as we participate today, those of us who rest in this, we can proclaim, Apo Catalasso, we've been changed thoroughly. And not because we were good and not because we did it, but while we were enemies, God reconciled us through the cross of Christ. Friends, let that soak in. How powerful is God that he changes enemies to sons? This is the power of the gospel. This is why Paul proclaimed it. For there is no other hope given under man by which we may be saved. No other. So I want us to move to a time that we pause and we proclaim this and we thank God. And in doing so, I just want to ask you, have you been reconciled? You see, this table is for people who've put their hope in Jesus. This table is the proclamation, Jesus is my hope. Have you been reconciled to God? Are you resting in Jesus At this table, when we take of it, we say, I don't have to earn anything else. Jesus has earned all that's necessary. At this table, we're pushed to gratitude to say thank you. And then I would just ask, is it evident that you are God's ambassador? Is it evident you've been reconciled? Does our life cause people to ask questions about the gospel? Father, we thank you for your word. I know that we have been here.